Well, uh, I've come to the conviction as I read books fairly regularly as part of my profession that the whole point of it, you know, is to, is to find kind of that one sentence, you know, that one idea, that one nugget buried within, you know, pages and pages and paragraphs and paragraphs that's worth, you know, all the work. And a number of years ago, I came across a book by a religion scholar, a fairly dry book, but he made an argument that there are only three possible ways of understanding the world and your place in it. He called one the atomic perspective. He called the second one the oceanic perspective. And the third, he called the relational perspective. And by way of illustration, to each perspective, he attached kind of a word picture. Uh, one was a billiard ball. The other was a drop of water, and the third is a net. Now, the atomic view sees the individual as the autonomous center of all knowing and willing, so that you move through the world something like a billiard ball. You're, you're hardened, you're impenetrable, you've always got to have some forward momentum, and anything you bump up against is either going to knock you out or you're going to knock it out. The oceanic view, by contrast, it's a view that's common in the east, not the east of the United States, the east of the world, is the perspective in which you understand yourself as merely an infinitesimal part of the infinite whole. You're a drop in the ocean that is the world. And then finally, there's the relational view in which the individual is neither independent and insular nor infinitesimal and insignificant, but is instead interconnected deeply, relationally. Everything is predicated upon relationships with the world, with society, with yourself, with God. You're part of a net. You're woven into a net. And it, it's that last view, the relational view, that also happens to be the perspective of the Bible. The scriptures look to the relational as the fundamental reality of all human existence so that what's true of everyone, for, for good or for ill, whatever you believe, it understands that you're in relationship with God, in the God in whose image you're made. It understands that we're all in relationship with the world God has made, and we either live according to the rules that he has established it with or we kick against them, but we're in relationship with it. And we're all deeply and indelibly connected by relationship to other human beings. And I've, I've thought about that a little bit this week and thinking just about this man, Nehemiah, how he understood his place in the world and how that directed his life and calling. You, you might remember that this book started off in a palace. And, and actually, to this very day, you can get something of an idea of the glories of what Nehemiah's palace life was like. Because we still have a few artifacts from one of the places that Nehemiah certainly would have served and lived in, the palace of Darius at Persepolis. If you've ever been to Paris and gone to the Louvre, you can actually get a glimpse. You can see a single, intricately carved capital that forms, two heads of two, uh, forms the head of two bulls it would have sat on top of one of 36 50-foot columns that would have lined that palace. And it is breathtaking. 
That was Nehemiah's life, sitting at the very top of what at the time was the very center of the world in influence, in power, in prestige, in beauty. But somehow, someway, he didn't disappear like a droplet into the vast ocean of Persian glory and power when news of Jerusalem came to him, nor was he hardened and insular like a billiard ball, cutting his swath through the world, writing his own personal story, saying, that's got nothing to do with me. Wildly, even from that position of the commanding heights, Nehemiah lived as a man connected. Connected to the God who made him, connected to God's people, most of whom he'd never met, connected to a place he had likely never seen prior to that point. So that his calling to lead the rebuilding of the city was defined relationally. Defined by his relationship with the Lord, by, by leaning on the Lord, by constantly praying, by placing his confidence in his promises. The great missionary Hudson Taylor said something I think is apt in describing Nehemiah. That all God's giants have been weak men who did great things for God because they reckoned on God being with them. It's the relationship. You really see that quality in his prayers in the first chapter, the one he prayed after hearing about the terrible state of affairs in Jerusalem. And it's a prayer, you know, as, as, as I've done sermon preparation all throughout these months, I keep going back to. Because it's so foundational when he prays, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you, day and night, for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Do you hear all the relational connection in that prayer? You're my God. You're our God. I want to pray not just for myself, but for my people, not just for this place, but for that place. It is that connection of faith and a covenant-keeping God which forms Nehemiah's calling and carries him from the glories of palace life to the dusty little patch of ground that was Jerusalem at the time. From a place where a glance of a single top of one single column to this very day will take your breath away to a city with no wall, with rubble so thick, you couldn't even squeeze your way through it to get the lay of the land where things were in shambles and where instead of power and, uh, and order and organization, you had chaos and opposition and you were easy pickings for whoever came by to maybe conquer your city. But here's the other thing that was true about Jerusalem, as true as anything else about it. It happened to be the place at the very center of God's purposes in the world. The place from which and through which he was going to work to advance his kingdom into all the world for the blessing of his people and the blessing of all the nations. Now, just because a calling is clear, and it certainly was clear for Nehemiah, doesn't mean it won't be challenging. In fact, I think the very opposite is true. Uh, if you take up a calling, as our, as our new elders just did, it is guaranteed that you will come into trials and troubles, joys and sorrows, you know, and all the rest. It's guaranteed. So our passage begins by informing us that while the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns, and the people blessed 
all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. Now, I want to be clear about this casting of lots. This was not a process by which, you know, they determined who was lucky enough to win the lottery of living in Jerusalem. It was just the opposite. This was the mechanism by which people, all of whom probably did not want to live in Jerusalem, would be drafted, would be voluntold to go and live in the city. And, you know, I've moved a number of times in my life, and several of them big, you know, state-to-state, region-to-region moves, and moving's always hard. But, you know, what I, what I at least had was a place to lay my head once the truck, you know, arrived at my destination. But back in chapter 7, we're told that Jerusalem was indeed large and spacious, but there were few people in it, and no houses had been rebuilt. And, you know, we've come to see uh, why there were so few people and why there were so few houses, because for 150 years, this was a city without a wall, and having no wall was like, to this day, like having no electricity and running water, and for my kids, you know, God forbid, no internet. You know, it's like the worst. At least if you lived outside the city and some marauders blew through, you, you, you know you'd lose some things, but you might save your life. But to live in an undefended city like this, you'd have been a sitting duck. You'd have been sticking out like a sore thumb. You'd have, there was no wall and no people to defend you. You were in real trouble. So even as the place is restored, you know, that memory is still there. There's nothing attractional about it. This is not fulfilling anyone's felt needs, but it needed a people to return. So I want to notice as we look at how this plays out, the order of how the city was populated, first of all, we're told that the leaders already live there. They didn't call people to this difficult faithfulness without first giving up their own comforts and committing to it themselves. That's the kind of leaders that God's city needed. One of the important discussions happening in our culture right now has to do with policing, there's been a lot of talk about policing, a lot, of, a lot of heat, maybe a little bit of light, but it seems that one really important area of unity in that whole discussion is the principle that the police ought to live in the communities in which they serve. In fact, a recent poll found that fully over 75% believed it to be extremely, 75% of police believed it to be extremely important to live in the communities in which they served, to have an in-depth knowledge of that community so that they wouldn't just be employees of a place, but that they would be residents of it, owners of it, stakeholders, that there would be a sense that they're in it together and that that would shape the service that they render to that community, right? It's, it's, it's why none of you have ever paid to get a rental car washed. You, you, you invest in that which you own, right? It's the same principle here. There's a principle of ownership. And today is really a great day in the life of the church as we've ordained new elders. And I just want to say that that, that a principle applies to them. It applies to those of us who have already been serving in this way, that we're, we're stakeholders. There ought to be a sense in which we already live where we're asking you to live. That, you know, that, that the gospel isn't something that we just think you guys need, but we live and move and operate in such a way that we're always saying we are needful of it ourselves desperately, that service isn't something that we think you all should be doing, but that we're the chief servants, 
that we're always taking the low place, that that's a quality of our leadership, that repentance isn't something that we just ask you guys to do, but that we're doing it ourselves, that we're the chief repenters. That faith isn't something we're calling you to, but that's something that we are called to and living in. This is what the leaders of Jerusalem did. They were the first ones in, come what may, joys and sorrows, successes and suffering. And I expect when the troubles come, they're the last ones out. Now, you might be thinking that we finally come to this place in the story where we're pivoting from the spiritual to the practical. We've seen as we preach through this book, I mean, gosh, we're in chapter 11 already, Um, There's been a lot of prayer, a lot of trusting in the Lord, and now we're finally to the place where we're getting down to the nuts and bolts. The nuts and bolts of like making a city. But as has always been the case in Nehemiah, there are bigger things afoot than civic engineering. And and I want to call particular attention to the fact that that the city they're called to live in is called the Holy City. Santa Fe. And that affects how people live there and look about and, and think about life there. It's easy to focus on the fact that they had to cast lots to get a population into the city, but I want to notice a, something that's even a bigger deal than just the practice of casting lots, and that is that they treat it as a tithe. They determine ahead of time that, that we will render one-tenth of our population in the land to make a home in the holy city. Getting Jerusalem up and going, in other words, is not merely an act of the will. It is an act of worship. So the question is, how do you make the leap from the normal practice of tithing possessions, normal part of the worship of God's people, to now tithing people? Well, the psalm we read in our call to worship, I think, is really helpful in understanding how you go from tithing possessions to tithing people. I'll remind us of what it said. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. What does a city need fundamentally to be a city? Well, of course, it's a no-brainer, and we see it here. It's got to have people. But Psalm 48, while not contradicting that fact makes a radical assertion for God's people that even more than God's city needs you, you need God's city. Because we aren't the life of the city. We aren't its foundation. We aren't its prosperity. We aren't its protection. The psalmist says, he is our fortress. He is our dwelling place forever. And it's, and it's by living in him as our home that his people come to know and delight in his steadfast love for them. And the psalmist pushes it even further. He says, okay, when you're in the city, uh, walk around. Walk about Zion. Go around her. Number her towers. Consider her ramparts. Go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation that this is God. Our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. Do you see how radical that is? Do you see how easy it would be to walk around a place like Jerusalem and think, man, look what David built. Look what Solomon did. 
Look what Ezra gave us and Nehemiah. And, and man, do you remember when King Artaxerxes gave us all the provisions to, in the construction material to build this city and how all the people gave all their money and how easy it is today, right, to walk around a church in the same exact way as the fruit of the gifts of generous donors, as the results of the hard work of a church-planting pastor. So that the thoughts are all about our story, what we've envisioned, what we've sacrificed, what we've worked on, what we've given to, what we've created, right? But the psalmist says, don't do that. (laughs) Do walk around, look around, look at everything. Delight in it and know that everything you're laying your eyes on is the fruit of God's faithfulness, that, that this place and His people are the fruit of His grace. Many of you know that um, I'd spent seven years planting a church by God's grace. That church is, still exists and is even growing and thriving by all accounts. Um, someone mentioned to me recently that my uh, previous church had, had redone its website and, uh, you know, so I, um, I was pretty invested in putting up the original website, so I thought, oh, look at what they've done with the website. And I checked it out, and I noticed something. They took down a page that, that gave the history of the church. The, you know, the story of it being planted and all of that. A story in which I happen to figure very prominently, by the way. <laughs> and I've got to make a little confession. You know, when I first saw that, I... Um, I thought, man, that, that kind of hurts a little bit. You know, I mean, I put a little blood, sweat, and tears into that place for seven years. But then I, th- I thought about it, and I thought, you know, how, actually, how wonderful. How good and right that is, because the last thing that church needs is my name echoing in the hallways. You know, the last thing that church needs is my story being told. The last thing it needs is a version of history in which they begin to imagine that what exists there is the fruit of the labors of a particular pastor at a particular time and a particular congregation, you know, and all of that. My hope is that whether people are getting on a website or walking the hallways or worshiping on Sunday, that... The, the, the words on their lips will be, our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. So when we come to another list of people in the text, I want to pay attention to one name in particular that kind of jumps out, uh, smack dab in the middle of the chapter, that again further makes the point that this is a city of praise. The name that jumps out to me is Asaph. Asaph, next to David, is the great psalmist. Uh, He wrote 11 psalms. His name is really a byword for praise. And it again makes the point that praising God is far from peripheral to the life of the city. It's just the opposite. It is absolutely the top priority. Everything in some way connects to worship. Not only is there the prominence, obviously, in these lists that we look at, there's priests and Levites and singers and overseers and temple servants, but, but also I want to remember the importance of the, the genealogies in these passages. You know, if you, a number of weeks ago I preached on chapter 6 and 7, and we read about how Nehemiah pulled out the old Ezra 2 genealogy and scrupulously cross-checked it to make sure that those who were part of this city um, 
were indeed verified members of God's covenant community, and I told you at that time, you know, that I, I have to admit, that kind of embodies a lot of the stuff I hate about churches, or it seems to that they, they can set themselves up as, as kind of walled off, as, as holy huddles, as, as either, you know, shaking their fist at the culture on the one hand or, or turning their back on it on the other, all while congratulating themselves of their spiritual superiority, which everybody sees through anyway. But here we begin to see that this actually is deeply connected to what it means to be a city of praise because what are these genealogies about? They're not about establishing God's people as just special people, like we're so special. We're more special than other people. No, it establishes them as a saved people. As a people who are in continuity with those people, God redeemed out of Egypt by a mighty hand. That's what's special about God's people, is that they are a saved people. And that singular fact that God saves by grace changes the entire community, the entire character of it, so long as the community is really savoring that fact and never getting over it. When, when you're a community that knows that you have been saved by the grace of God due to no work or merit of your own, that carries within it the power to change people and entire communities in ways that are radical. Maybe the first effect of being saved, you know, is how it positions you. I mean, what I mean to say is that you, you realize fundamentally, first and foremost, that, that what is true about your life is you needed something more than improving. You needed saving. You, you realize you would have been doomed had it not been for that salvation. Salvation, by its very nature, has to do with people first being in a position of helplessness and hopelessness in their troubles until someone comes from the outside to intervene and rescue you from that predicament. And the only proper response to salvation is celebration, is praise. There, there's moments in history that give you a flavor of that, right? When wars are won, what do people do? They fill the streets, they embrace people, they kiss people on the lips they've never even seen before. They sing songs. They, they pop open the champagne. When prisoners of war return, they go down the stairs of the airplane and they kiss the ground. When your favorite baseball team hasn't won a championship in 86 years, you flood the streets when they finally win, right? It's celebratory. War is over. Freedom has been secured. Humiliation has ended. Salvation produces praise, and praise changes your perspective, and it shifts your priorities. Your perspective has changed because you begin to apprehend what it means to have been saved, to have received grace, to know how blessed and fortunate and loved and cared for you are, even though the story should have been different. And that fact has the capacity to melt our hardened hearts, does it not? softens your heart, makes you grateful, makes you self-forgetting, it makes you sympathetic. You savor the good things that have come to you and you begin to actually want them for others. Grudges and grievances begin to melt away and what takes their place is gratitude. And here's the thing, no one can boast in being saved. None of us have ever watched the evening news, you know, with somebody being plucked via helicopter by a flood and then interviewing that person and 
that person going, yeah, did you see what I did back there? It was amazing, wasn't it? No. It's all thanks and gratitude for the person who saved them. Another fruit of understanding the greatness of salvation is that it changes your priorities. The life you may have clung to so tightly before doesn't seem as worthy of your affections and energies as it used to because you've been on the receiving end of that which you know you didn't deserve and didn't earn. And it becomes sweeter than any life you imagine you may have secured for yourself otherwise, right? Salvation just changes you. It has to. Years ago, Kit and I were on a flight that, uh, let's just say, did not go well. And it wasn't the usual stuff of not getting my aisle seat, which is very important to me, or losing our, our, you know, our luggage being lost, or not having enough ice in the complimentary beverage. But there came a point in our flight where there was an explosion, and where our plane began to shake violently, and where smoke began to flood the cabin, And we were informed that we were going to have to make an emergency landing, which we did. And we slid down the rubber slide from the emergency exit and were greeted by first responders, some great firemen, and they told us to run. And that was an experience that really changed us. You know, the Lord saved us. We spent some time in in those moments where we were sitting there, literally for half an hour, contemplating our mortality crying out to the Lord. And the Lord saved us. And you know what I didn't care about afterwards? There were a lot of things I cared about before that that I didn't care about afterwards. I didn't care about my luggage, if I'd ever see it again. I didn't care about my travel plans. I didn't care about me. That experience worked into our hearts, I think, just a gratitude for life, a thankfulness to God for His grace and loving us and caring for us and saving us, not just then, but also having the assurance in those moments that live or die, we will, we will be with Jesus either today or at some point in the future. Made a lot of things that had been big concerns for me seem small, and I have to admit, many of them petty. God's people are a saved people which means they have to be a community of praise, a community with a gracious perspective on life, a community with changed priorities because they've never gotten over the greatness of grace that has been given them in being saved. And look, I mean, this is a dramatic story. Few of us will be called to leave hearth and home to start a whole new life. Maybe some of us will, by God's grace. Maybe some of us will be called to that, but... I want to look at it in another way as, as not a dramatic story, as, as something that's normative, as in normal in being part of the church, which always involves being called out of the old life in order to be called into newness of life, which always involves leaving comforts and abandoning the life we've been cultivating for ourselves, always involves leaving old loyalties so that our loyalties would be for our king the Lord Jesus, for His kingdom, knowing that the gain is greater than whatever is lost, that we might become a part of a new people, a new kind of community, living in the newness of life together. And and I don't know about you, I mean, aside from big moves and everything else, I feel like I do this nearly every week. 
you know, when I come here and I wander in here like an amnesiac who has spent the week forgetting the greatness of grace that has been given to me. On the one hand, rolling through life like a billiard ball. In another, you know, in another instance, like a droplet lost in the ocean of my own worries and fears and anxieties and self and everything else. God is gracious to call all of us here that we would walk around and consider how great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Savoring the astounding fact that we haven't been treated as our sins have deserved, that even though we ought to, we ought to be in prison for our sin, we've been pardoned and set free. That we should have been consumed by the disease of our sin, but we have been healed by the grace of Jesus. That we ought to be dead in our sins and trespasses. Objects of wrath in the world, but we've been made alive in Christ because ours is a great salvation and we have a great and gracious Savior. By the end of the chapter, we come to yet another list. It's kind of summed up with the words of the rest of Israel who were called to live in the city. Uh, surprisingly, and maybe even shockingly, the rest of Israel seems pretty paltry. All we've got is three out of the 12 tribes of Israel, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin and Levi. And if that makes the city seem somehow incomplete, that's because that's exactly what it is. With all these names that are scrupulously listed, the city, you know, might at first seem a little clubby, like who's in and who's out, but it turns out that this is very much about who is not yet in the city. It's as much about who's not there as who is there. Because the nature of the city is that it, would want, it is one that ought to be always growing because of the grace of our God. Always integrating new citizens. Always expanding in the world. And look, even though COVID has dealt us a major disruption and under normal circumstances, we're like a lot of churches you know, where we come week in and week out expecting to see our people, right? And there's, there's a lot of joy in that and anticipation in that and the people that you know and maybe have known for a long time. But what, to, what ought to be on our minds and in our hearts every bit as much as seeing the people we expect to be there is thinking about who should be here and is not. Not yet. Our neighbors, our friends, skeptics and, and, and seekers, the people who are doubtful, people who are derisive, People who are not yet part of the city but should be here. Whom we long to become part of this company of the redeemed, part of the community of praise. You know, the talk of what the world needs now is pretty intense, right? We need social cohesion. We need plans. We need vaccines. We need things to end and we need things to begin. And, and yay and I amen to all of that, and, and may it all be true and quickly. But may we never lose sight of what the greatest need of the world is, always. And that is that the world needs Jesus and his gospel. The world needs his city, his church, to thrive in this city and in the world, to the glory of his name and to the good of those who are near and far, so that those who are being lied to and lying to themselves would come into a community of truth. So that those who are being crushed by the burden of the self-actualized billiard ball life would be embraced 
by a selfless community that doesn't live for itself, but is deeply involved in the concerns of the neighborhood. So that our community would be served by those who are living out the gospel in public life, driven by a sense of mutual responsibility in a world crushed by individualism. So that Santa Fe would be blessed by a community of hope and a world awash in despair about the future. That's what the church is. That's what it's always being called to be, that we can, would rejoice in knowing that Jesus lives here. He's taken up residence here. He is ready to give grace to a needy people. And I don't, I don't know where you're at this morning, but it may be that you're thinking not just about what it looks like to take up residence with God's people, but what that may cost you, what, what you may leave behind. So just know this, that Jesus has gone ahead of you. That whatever cost you are contemplating, a much greater cost has already been paid. That whatever it is you're clinging to and can't dream of letting go, there are better things in store for you. Remember that, that Jesus, who dwelled in glory, left everything that was advantageous to him and entered in to the ruined, broken heaviness of the city of man laying aside all his glory and his power and his prestige and taking upon himself the heaviness of humanity, the full weight of God's law, ultimately the full punishment of sin that should have fallen upon us so that we could be citizens of his city, citizens of the city of the saved, city, a city of praise, a city that's always growing to the glory of his name forever and ever. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness and, and your love for your people. Lord, we, um, it's hard to articulate the greatness of your grace, so I will just simply say thank you. Thank you for plucking us from the morass. Thank you for rescuing us. Uh, Lord, forgive us for losing sight of that. Um, have mercy on us. And Lord, as we come to this table, give us hearts that are hungry and thirsty and full of gratitude. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.